Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode 59, top three UX considerations. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and want to support us, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or on the podcast platform that you listen to this on. You can also check us out on Patreon. We only have two tiers right now, but the $3 tier will give you a shout-out on the show, and we will share your website link in the show notes. And probably the most important one is just that you tell your friends about this. Share it, get it out there, and let them know that we're here and ready to be listened to. And with that, we're also ready to be hung out with. If uh, that, that, was an, that wasn't a bad transition, That was a good actually. segue. That, that was a good segue. That wasn't bad. I was going to say, like, holy fuck, that was, that was smooth. Uh, but anyway, our... <laughs> Patting myself on the back. So yeah, our Discord server has been open for a little over a month now, and uh, we have a lot of great conversation, a lot of great people in there chatting away, giving each other some help, and just talking about whatever it is. We even have a uh, a falconer in there, as I just learned today. So that's kind of a, an interesting an interesting thing. I just open up one of the channels, and it's like, what's this? What's this bird doing here? So uh, shout out to that fellow there. But anyway, as we always do, weekly pain point, Mike. Please take it away. All right. Uh, I actually have to go through a lot of things for my weekly pain point, but I've decided to narrow it down to just one. So currently working on a interface between Flutter and Cordova to cross-platform technologies. I'm on, I'm working on the iOS side right now, and I have to kind of get my mind wrapped around Objective-C. Um, I don't know Objective-C at all. Like I have zero experience with it. I know C a little bit. Uh, so I have a little bit of background, but Objective-C is significantly different than just plain C, C sharp as well. I have a little bit of background, but again, Objective-C is different. Um, so I'm just trying to wrap my around about, wrap my head around like how the entire, you know, iOS build process works, how this thing's called Cocoa Beans or co- like pod pod files and stuff, how they build the, all the files to, to actually initiate the build process and install on an iOS device, stuff like that. Uh, that's what I've been kind of working on and struggling with hitting my head against wall after wall, but now I'm slowly working through it. Hopefully I'll have uh, a different pain point next week and I'll solve this problem. What about you, Matt? So my pain point is related to the fact that I've just recently upgraded my phone and I've uh, entitled this fiasco, the great content fiasco of 2019 colorized. And what this is, is that my contacts years ago were all put on one Microsoft account. They were all synced. They were all like synced to that thing. And then I had an app years ago on a BlackBerry where I said, where it said, oh, we can sync all your contacts. So I was like, oh, it'd be great. I'll add it to one account and then constantly sync all these contacts with all my accounts and just have one master contact list on everything. Uh, sadly, in the middle of it syncing, it, it failed. So my contacts are scattered throughout all of my email accounts and it also never worked again. If I press sync, it just never worked again in that app. So. How, what I've been doing for years is I just sync all my accounts to any device I have to piecemeal together my contacts list. Well, as I learned today or the other day when I switched, I just bought a Note 10 Plus. As I learned uh, when using Smart Switch, uh, I thought I was backing everything up, my contacts and everything, uh, to the Samsung Cloud. And maybe I was. I don't really know what happened. But I used Smart Switch to get my data onto this thing. And apparently I have all my contacts here. They're all on the phone there's a bunch of them that needs to be merged. There's a bunch of them all over the place, duplicates all over the place. None of them are connected to an account. And when I when they weren't connected to an account on my S8 Plus, they would disappear. So now that they're not connected, I don't know what happened. 
And so now I got duplicates everywhere. There's stuff everywhere. And for some reason in my most recently contacted, although it is most definitely not been most recently contacted, I have an AOL customer service number. So I need wow. to quite literally take, go through hundreds, actually hundreds of contacts, ensure that I, I got, that the information is correct. Generate a list on something. I don't even know what to generate it on because I need it to be everywhere. And then put it into a service for syncing and make sure that syncs to everything, including the PC. So uh, it's going to be hell. And I also did not sync my contacts from the emails this time because I'm afraid of it duplicating everything. Because I do believe it will duplicate everything twice. Although I think tonight I'm just going to click the toggle switch. And if it's chaos, it's already chaos. So, I mean, it's not that bad. So that... That's my, that's the contact fiasco of 2019 colorized. Um, if you I definitely a... just use uh, Google contacts. Like I, I've been probably using that for 10 years and I haven't had a single issue with syncing. Like I have switched devices quite often and formatted my system quite often. So I, I don't know. My, my recommendation is just to scrap all your contact things and put everything into Google contacts. And, you know, since you're working on Android, it should be a pretty easy switch. Now, the question is, though, is when I go to use Outlook, on anything else. So if I go to use Outlook, like um, like the web client, I won't have those contacts. Maybe Th- try to sync them to there. Like is try there to sync a way Google to do to, that? I, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't looked into that in a long time, but I'm assuming there is since Google contacts is probably the most popular one at this point, Apple and Google, where Microsoft would be kind of – because and, and Microsoft has been known to like favor – uh, being compatible with Android and iOS now. Like yeah. They're trying, they're, instead of trying to do their own thing, they're trying to kind of build their systems in. So I'm assuming you can. I'm going to say yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, anyone out there, but I would definitely recommend just getting Google contacts and forgetting about all this syncing nonsense. So I might, I might do that, but I need to literally now come up with a plan. Like this is actually like almost like a server migration <laughs> where I need to like make sure my data doesn't get corrupt and I need to like sync it somewhere and stuff like that. And toggling this switch tonight might ruin my life. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll just see, just lose everyone's numbers and have to do one of those Facebook posts, like new phone, send names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're here for the top three, UX considerations, and it was actually formerly the top five UX considerations. However, these considerations are actually quite lengthy. We're at about four pages of show notes here, um, including intro and outro, so I decided to cut it short and just do the top three. So if you've been following me on Medium, which you probably haven't because I don't have any followers on Medium, you know that I did a very sparse series, and by series I mean literally two, <laughs> articles about, about uh, or they were entitled a UX consideration, and they caught, they I touched on a couple of different things and what they, what I tried to do with them was, and sort of an, an verbalize or write down, I guess I should say, and the unspoken rules of UX, just like random ones. So the first one is called the newcomer effect and I'll get into that. The second one is called familiarity. And then the third one is not based on an article at all. It's exclusive for this podcast. Um, and it's called evolution and respect. So these are sort of, unspoken rules like i said i i don't really know how to like say it when, when i when i describe what these are i think you'll kind of get what i'm trying to what i'm trying to say it's like these wouldn't be taught traditionally or at least not in my experience these would be just sort of things that you should consider so number one here is the newcomer effect so i'm gonna have the link to the the full written thing if you want to read it um on on my medium of course i'll have that in the show notes but this refers to an experience that a newcomer has with 
actually zero prior experience. So in this article, I refer to navigating a hospital with nothing but the doctor's name and the need to find the proper waiting area for said doctor. So ideally, as a UX expert or UX designer, you would want to hold a newcomer's hand through the process so that they're familiar with all the navigation systems in place within a building. So things like signs or building sections or anything else that the building uses to, you know, navigate or to call people to like, you know, doctor, please report to wing six, you know, like wing six is an example of one of those systems. So people familiar with this process would actually be impeded by that handholding process. And therefore, the ideal UX in this case would be to dynamically target newcomers, which is often not possible. And this leads to this sort of middle ground that I explore in the article. So if we take the hospital example, large, clear signs of major landmarks, things like the building names, entrances, and exits, those would be what I would call major landmarks. Those things should be very clearly labeled. And out of the way, so they're just like, you know, paste it on a wall. So the doctors and stuff who know where they are, they don't need to read it. But anyone who's like, where do I park? It's like, what's close to the entrance? They could see that. How do I get out of here? There's the exit. You know, what building am I in? They know they're in building A, B, C, whatever it is. Also, clearly labeled signs internally uh, with terms that people would actually understand if they haven't been there before. So this is like a really big thing. So, for example, something like urology lab floor two isn't helpful because you don't even, you, you have no idea what floor number you're on. You don't know what urology is. You don't even know how to get to a different floor. So those type of terms might be really great for you to go to an information booth, but you don't know where an information booth is either. So those signs need to sort of, sort of be either pictographs, in my opinion, where you would have maybe a little map and you would have like arrows saying like, you know, you turn left, turn right, turn this, whatever. And this is how you get to urology. Or something along the lines of, oh, please take, like, maybe list this term, urology lab floor two, please check with the information booth and then have that pictograph, turn left, turn right, go here, this is where you can ask, like, a, a full-time staffer, where am I supposed to go? And also, full information section of sorts, so something like one of those tall displays, so kind of touching back on, like, that map idea I just said, so something like one of those tall displays that you would see at a mall they usually have like a touchscreen and some searchable terms. Like you can type in the store you want to go to. Like, I don't know, you want to go to like the Roots store or whatever. You can go and type that in. And then that would allow a newcomer to simply walk up to the sign. It's big. It's obvious. It's right at the entrance. They can figure out where they need to be. It's a visual experience. But it's not blocking the door in any way so that people like the doctors or other patients who have been there before can simply just ignore it, walk by it, and they're not impeded by that by that procedure. So this might all sound very logical. But the reason why I I think this is important, why this is sort of an unspoken rule, is that when you yourself, the UX designer, the the UX expert, actually come in and you get familiar with the layout of the hospital, for example, in or in, in this example, if you get used to the layout of the hospital yourself, you yourself are forgetting the newcomer effect. So you're forgetting things and you are just writing things like, oh, this is simply urology lab floor two. Again, who the hell knows what urology is? And like, I'm on a a urology urology lab, fine. But like, where the hell is floor two? What floor am I on? Whatever. But you yourself are so familiar with, you know, maybe you were the guy laying out the maps. You were the guy laying out the signs that you're going to forget that type of stuff. So it's an unspoken rule in that it's something that you need to consider consistently. But also, but also keep reminding yourself about it as you go through because you you experiencing it, you're losing the newcomer effect. That's kind of why I mentioned it this way. Um, 
I'm going to go on to the next point, unless Mike has any points about this or any like questions. Yeah, uh, actually, this is a super interesting one because it's it's kind of a it's kind of one that you like you said you don't really think about too too much uh, because we're so again we're we're not the newcomers most of the time, especially when you're designing it. So would you say, and I'll fire off maybe a couple questions to you and you can kind of tackle them from a web development perspective, uh, web design perspective. Uh, with the newcomer effect, would you say the best way to do it is through uh, like to find out where you need to put those markers per se with like external testing? Is that the best way? Because you can't be a newcomer to your own site no matter what. Uh, I mean, you're going to talk about in number two, you're going to talk about familiarity and that's going to help in newcomer effect. But in terms of stuff that you miss, there's still going to be sections of a site. Like if you have a large site, it's still going to be, it might have a problem. Like you might have a problem connecting pieces. Mm-hmm. You might, you might think that it's a very simple process, but you're not going to get like, it's, it's not going to, you know, you look at a customer and they're going to do things completely differently than you. So. The way I like the logic that I see how you have you described it is bring in testers constantly, new new testers, not just like the same testers that you always bring in and get them to just use the site. It could be just a couple of people, whatever, like depending on the size of your company and the size of your project, it might be even more. But is that the way that you handle finding where to put those markers or is there a better way? So the way I the way I would handle it, the way I would handle it is normally I'd actually do sort of sort of both. So I'll, I'll, I'll describe that. So in the beginning of the project, because you yourself are a newcomer, I would kind of come up with a basic scheme of how I would want to handle, let's say navigation, like navigation is a huge thing on a site. Like you were saying, oh, you know, you might, if, if you have an information heavy site, you might have a full page with a table. And then in that table has a link, which goes to another page that is only linkable by that. And then you might like miss one of those links. So now that page is gone. Like it's a bit of a mess. So what I would do in the very beginning when I myself am a newcomer is I would come up with a basic language thing where I would say all navigation goes here. All navigation is, let's say, red, like it's all going to be red text. All navigation, when possible, is going to be a verb. So like that's one of the UX things where you want to make the buttons easy to understand where like they're actionable. So you come up with like a basic set of rules that you're going to follow throughout. And then, yes, you lose a bit of that newcomer effect, of course, as you become familiar with the product but at least you're kind of you're kind of staying true to that idea in the beginning when you were new and then what i do is on really simple sites where i still want to test that type of thing i'll send the link to someone and be like oh can you pull like i'll it'll be the the home page and i'll be like hey can you take a screenshot of how this looks on your phone uh like i want you to take a picture of the contact page you know for me or i want you to take a picture of the latest I don't know, football game or something, if that's on the site, or I want you to take a picture of the latest calendar or something like that. Um, that's how I would, that's how I would personally handle it for a simple site. And then if, if the site is rather large and like really information heavy, then yes, I agree with you. You would need to do testing. And the problem with it is the fact that the testers themselves become more familiar. So you may have to, if it's really complex, you may have to go through a couple of rounds of testers themselves, the same test, but just you know, okay, let's get some new people in here this week, test this thing, you know, how clumsy are they through it? Let's, you know, try to make it less clumsy. At the same time, you can actually reuse those other testers because now they're a little more familiar just to make sure they're not being impeded by like overbearing tutorials, for example, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. I think that it's a really good one to bring up in my opinion, because it's not a, it's not one that we think about when we think about UX right away. Uh, so it, it, I think it is important to start thinking about it from a newcomer's perspective. And I think 
as you're going to go go on to the next one, which is familiarity, it's, it's going to segue perfectly into how you can kind of combat the newcomer effect, right? Like how, how you can help yourself with the newcomer effect. So I'll let you do that. Yeah. So uh, number two here, uh, familiarity. So this is, again, also seen on my Medium blog if you want to read the whole thing, because I'm not going to touch on everything that was in there. But basically, as we all know, many people hate change. Uh, they all like, but, but as all good business owners know, change is inevitable and is actually necessary to stay ahead of your competitors. And similarly, US, UX experts, uh, know that change is inevitable as well, whether it be forced by, let's say, larger and larger screens on mobile devices or completely new devices, like when tablets came onto the market, um, or new, like new use cases emerge, like people are, starting to use their phones for more of like a camera, you know, now they, now these days than they were back in the day when they were just texting. So stuff like that will force a UX expert to sort of think out of the box and, and adjust and adapt. So with these changes, the familiar user interfaces and features that users are accustomed to are, are threatened. And when, when changed outrage is actually a common response. So if you remember, and I remember this thing I'm going to say, but I didn't experience it. So I joined, just a full disclaimer, I joined Facebook after the quote-unquote new Facebook came out, like right when it came out. So I saw the outrage, but didn't care because I never saw the old design. But if anyone remembers the the quote-unquote new Facebook and all the groups dedicated to bringing back the old Facebook, like, oh, if this group gets 100,000 followers or 100,000 members, Facebook's going to like revert the design to the old Facebook. I remember those things, so people messaging that and posting that on their wall and that type of thing. People were pissed off, but... Slowly but surely, that outrage went away, and I'll explain why that is in a couple minutes here. So, as a UX designer, you actually have to balance out the pros and the cons of making changes to an established experience. And oftentimes, it's much better to make iterative changes to a user interface, slowly modernizing as time goes on, and slowly easing the user into unfamiliar features one at a time. Now, with that being said, you might be like, well, full UI overhauls happen for a reason. And that's absolutely true. Full UI overhauls are inevitable. No matter what you do, they are inevitable and will always almost be, almost always be met with fierce backlash from established users. And so therefore it's important that when an overhaul of this magnitude is being carried out, that every decision makes the UX better in some way. Overall and over time, the great UI and UX combo of this, of this new overhaul, this new experience will silence the outrage and make the experience whole again in most cases. So in, in the case of Facebook, no one wants the quote unquote old Facebook back. Facebook did the, did the research. They knew what people were going to use. They knew people were going to adapt. They knew it was going to settle down. They didn't revert. They stuck to their guns and bang. We still have, we have a new Facebook now and no one mentions the old Facebook anymore, at least not in my friend group. And I don't see any of those groups anymore. So familiarity also reaches actually beyond your own product or your own website. And it actually reaches into others in the same or similar segment. So if you wanted to make a chat app, so there's tons of chat apps out there. This is probably a really good example for this. So for example, there, there's already actually an established UI that most people are familiar with, with chat apps. And therefore will expect when downloading your app, even though it's different, that they'll, they'll expect a similar UI. So straying too far from this standard design, and you know what it is. It's a chat window that fills the majority of the screen. Then at the bottom, you kind of have like all your UI stuff that you interact with. And that's kind of reserved for, you know, a text box, a send button, a media upload button. And then there's a few other things. But generally speaking, as long as you have this stuff, you're kind of good to go. 
But if you stray from this design, this design language that isn't even necessarily the one that you want to use, people might just look at it and say, this is a learning curve. I'm done. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. They might just download your app, look at it, or maybe not even download it and just be like, nah, this is too much of a learning curve and just take right off. So you kind of have to take into consideration that there may be a design language that's already established in your segment that you either need to ease users out of you can always take a risk and just sort of like force them but the thing is is it's very hard for a user to be loyal enough when your app is new to adjust to your massive learning curve so that's sort of something to keep in mind that a lot of people won't consider they'll be they'll they'll think um a good example actually is do you remember mike back in the day we used uh, you had a samsung tablet and you were showing me in the in the browser that one of the innovative things that you liked was the fact that the UI, like the the main things you use, so like the back button, the forward button, whatever, wasn't in the top bar. They reserved they took away the top bar and they had like a little circle that you could move around. And then you mm-hmm. would click the circle and there was like all the different things. And you could click like WWW, I think was the button. And then it would pull up, you know, a box for you to type in your website. So everything was kind of like this dynamic thing. And that type of stuff was useful. Like from a UX perspective, it it was rather useful, but never caught on because in my opinion, because of this, because people weren't familiar with it, it wasn't something that they were familiar with from their computers, from their iPhones, from their other browsers. And so it just died out. People are like, I don't want to move this thing around. I don't know what I'm doing. I just want my box at the top. I want my back button. I want my home button on my, maybe my favorites button. That's it. And so even, even a company like Samsung, again, this wasn't like disclosed by them that this is what happened. But in my opinion, this is why stuff like that dies out. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I, this is a really good, this is a really big point. Like familiarity is a really big point. And it's also one that's extremely hard to balance. Um, I know because a, a lot of people will be like, like you, you mentioned the chatting app. Let's say you think of the best chatting app in the world. But you don't go through the steps that uh, Matt just said, like building it to to look like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. If you don't go through those steps, it could be the best chatting app in the world. People aren't going to use it. It's just not going to have the adoption rate because, like you said, people don't want people don't want to invest time, a lot of time, into learning something, even if it's going to be beneficial for them. Now there is a balance to it. Obviously, like if let's say you have a chatting app and you have a couple features there that people aren't familiar with. But you keep the structure of the app the same. You just add those features in areas where you think people are going to kind of use them as they go. Those are the kinds of things you can slip in rather than a radical redesign. Um, Facebook, you mentioned, you mentioned Facebook before. Like the, the reason that Facebook was able to do the new Facebook and do the redesign is because they were Facebook. Like they already had an established base of people. They knew like 100%, they knew the outrage was going to happen and they were willing to weather it. They were willing to, willing to weather the storm. This was like, okay, so it was, it wasn't super designed for the user. It was designed for the company. Yes, the, like people aren't complaining about it now. Um, I think some people would still like it the old way because it's more designed for the user where you just see the stuff that's relevant to you instead of just random stuff in your feed. But, the company decided that it's going to go this direction. It's going to weather the storm, but it already had a massive user base. So even if it lost X amount of users, it could survive. For a new customer, for a, a new app that you're putting out there, if you want to make your own Facebook and you decide, hey, Facebook is great, but let's make something completely different. Like look at look at uh, Google Plus. I mean, Google Plus was a really good application or Google. It was Google Plus, right? Like the, the Facebook competitor. Yeah, I'm go- th- sure. that was Google social media. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was really good. Like I used it. I used the circles. Like I, I used it quite often. 
but it never got the adoption because it was so radically different from Facebook. And it came late to the party and it decided to go in a radical, radically different direction. It can't get the adoption. In my opinion, if it went the route of Facebook and decided let's stick to Facebook formula, get the user base, and then slowly build in the, the features that uh, – that we want to put in there, it would have had a different uh, outcome because it was a really good social media app and social media experience compared to other social media experiences. But people don't want to invest. Like, why would you want, like, think about yourself. You're really into tech. You're really into some sort of thing and you know the ins and outs of it. But what about the thing that you're not into? Like, you're maybe you don't care about cars. Why would you invest time into something that, like, you really don't care about, which is social media for a lot of people? Like they don't care about social media. They don't care about new phone technology. They don't care about – they just want to literally pick it up and use it because everyone else is using it at that time. That's it. That's literally their only goal in life. Like that's all they want. So familiarity is huge in that and you can take it to your advantage, right? Like you can create uh, – if you're creating for internal business applications, create something like if if you're doing a messaging platform, internal, internal business applications, create something that looks almost exactly like WhatsApp. People will love you for it because they'll be like, I already know how to use this. I don't have to learn anything new. So take it, take familiarity to your advantage, fight with small changes when you can. If you're doing a major change, just know you're going to have that, uh, that pushback like Matt was saying. And actually that, that the Google plus is a really good example because Google plus, if you, if you remember, actually, I think they identified the fact that they weren't doing that well. And this was like years before they had shut down and they actually, they actually tried to force, or they did, they forced you to have a Google Plus account in order to have a, a YouTube account, in order to comment and that type of thing. I remember that when Google, because that was like around the time when Google was like acquiring YouTube and like kind of like molding it into one of their services, right? Where it wasn't just YouTube.com anymore. It was, you know, kind of Google's YouTube. And that was one of the things where you have to connect your YouTube account to a Google Plus account if you already had one. Or, you know, you if you have a Google Plus account, you just use that to sign into it's into YouTube. They were trying to force people where it's like, Hey guys, you're on YouTube, get into our new service. And even Google, even YouTube, you know, with that, with that force, with that, like you're saying, people were just using YouTube with that force behind it. They still couldn't get people into that service enough to use it. It stayed alive for a while, but I mean, that's also because Google has a lot of money. And I agree with you that when we use like for my other podcast for years, we use Google plus to promote, it had better, uh, almost said better ingredients. Thanks, thanks, Papa John's. Oh my lord! It had better um, reach. It seemed to get better engagement, and it seemed to just get better statistics. And I got more views on those like video podcasts or those videos when they were shared on Google Plus because it seemed to be more toward the user for whatever reason. The algorithm was better, and I just seemed to get more exposure on there. Now, whether that's because less people were on there, or whatever, it doesn't matter. It was still helped, and so. Even if it's better, it can get screwed over by familiarity is basically what I'm trying to get at. Um, so we'll move on to number three here, which complements it quite nicely. It's, it's called Evolution and Respect. So this is uh, this one is not accompanied by a Medium article, uh, just to let you know. So platforms, apps, products of all kinds go through changes throughout their lives, driven either by market changes, creative differences, or new technologies completely coming into the market and just kind of taking it by storm. And while necessary, these changes are difficult to make, to make due to the, er, one second here. While necessary, these changes are difficult to make due to the established user base and the aforementioned familiarity that they have with the product. New app slash product directions come with new features that may completely or partially alienate established longtime users. Newly added features may be great, 
maybe a great selling feature to get more people on board, but for the established user, they may not care at all. They may just be there for a very particular use case. So I have a couple of examples lined up here. I have a YouTube example and I have a Facebook example as well. So a very simple one is, of course, YouTube and the live streams that they now support. So for a good por- for a good portion of its life, YouTube was all about on-demand video. You record something, you upload it, and people watch it whenever they want. Boom, that's it. But then we started seeing the rise of things like Periscope, Twitch, and other live streaming apps. So that basically, that basically just came on, came by storm is that the internet likes live video. They like on demand, but they also like live. So then later on in its life, YouTube expands into live streaming. However, there's a few key points here. Live streaming did not take over the video on demand section. And that, so that's them remaining true to their original vision. Live streaming options are just as accessible as the traditional upload functionality with literally the same button clearly offering both options. Click that one button. Do you want to upload? Do you want to live stream? Really, really easy, really simple, both just as important on the service. And another, and the third point is live streaming content doesn't appear to show up more prominently while browsing, meaning it's important, meaning its importance seems to be equal to that of on-demand video. I don't see announcements for live stuff more than I see stuff for on-demand stuff. Now, I'm a YouTube premium member. Whether that has any difference or anything like that, I don't think it does. But the point of the matter is, is that even live streaming content has the same or very similar tile as an on-demand tile when I want to select something. So that shows their commitment to, if you're just here to watch like older videos, go ahead. If you want to do this live stuff, go ahead. We value them both both the same amount. If you're a guy who hates live streaming stuff, just ignore it. It's clearly labeled as live streaming, but it's not big in your face, always there. So another example then would be Facebook. So in the early days of Facebook, it was more or less just for uploading, you know, a text status like, oh, I'm watching TV. Maybe you want to upload some photos like of your vacation or something like that. Or you just want to chat with some friends and you know, that's it. But it very, very, very quickly evolved into various internet trends offering things like videos with which now have a full quote unquote watch section that is just for Facebook video content. There are dedicated Facebook content creators. There's actually some sort of Facebook content creator platform or uh, not a platform, but like they have like some sort of support network or something like that. Like they acknowledge, Hey, there's Facebook content creators out there. There's full business tools now for page management, which actually can span across both Facebook and your Instagram alike. The list of these changes goes on and on and on. However, the big thing here is you can still go to the top of your page or the top of your timeline, whatever you call it, different, different function or different name, same functionality, and simply type in a text status. Oh, I'm watching TV. Or you just want to upload your, your photos from your vacation to an album. You can absolutely do that. And they can still go to your profile, look at your pictures and look at your album, just like they always did. And that's them staying true to the vision of the people who are just like, I just want to share photos with my family. They can absolutely do that. There's privacy features allow you to do that still. And it's just pretty much the same thing as it was just with a lot of fluff around it that you can totally ignore and that's it. So the point of the matter here is that you don't want to play into a new trend or new feature too heavily if it's going to disrespect your established audience. It could have been so easy for YouTube to say, oh, Twitch and that is like trendy and like live streaming is going crazy. People are going live on Twitter and stuff. We're going to go all live stream. We're going to have live stream show up at the top of the page. You know, we're still going to have on demand video, but that, that, that's, that's yesteryear. We're going to have all this live streaming crap all over the stuff. We're going to have all these push notifications get pushed out to people 
always like even if you're even if you just watched it and you didn't you, even if you just watched the channel and didn't subscribe we're gonna have push notifications sent out to you algorithmically for live streams we're gonna have all this stuff to push 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 live streams that's not what happened it it was brought out whatever and it's just as important as their on-demand stuff to keep respect for their old audience and now with this being said again you might be on the other side of the fence where you're like well sometimes change is needed and that's true there are times where a radical change is needed and sometimes that might happen because you are actually already losing your core audience or maybe your business is just in trouble and you need to try something completely new. But in general, in my opinion, it's important to evolve at the times, but also respect that core audience and that original goal that you had with your product or website or whatever it was. So a really interesting like uh, case study that you can do with this where something went terribly wrong. So Matt, you were saying try to stick to what your core audience likes and don't stray too far away from it. If you're adding features, make them additive rather than removing functionality for your users and then adding your features on top of the functionality that you've removed. That's like putting salt in the wound. A company that did it terribly. Um, and again, it wasn't fully a terrible idea from the start, but dig.com. I don't know if anyone remembers dig.com. Uh, it was, it was a really popular site, very similar to Reddit back in 2010, I think, something around there. Uh, maybe 2009, 2008, something around there. It was a huge site, like very, very similar to Reddit. So people would post links, uh, people would post content on there and people could upvote, downvote, uh, that, that, that was the, that was the original concept of it. So that you had a front page. It was kind of, it was called, I believe it was the first front page of the internet. I believe that's what they called that dig.com at that point. I could be wrong. But essentially what you were supposed to do is supposed to be a conglomerate of everything because the most popular stuff would rise to the top and you could kind of go down and go down the list and see all the less popular stuff as you go down. So I think in around 2010, 2011, dig decided to do a redesign. And what they wanted to do was become a little bit more like Facebook because they saw Facebook gaining popularity. They saw Facebook gaining the the capital it was gaining. It was like, well, if Facebook can do it, why can't we with our massive user base because they did have a massive user base at the time kind of start to shift towards that kind of approach. And what they did was instead of having a one big page kind of everyone – if everyone goes to this page, they see the same links. It was group and friend based. So you would go to the site and this was like kind of an overnight switch. You would go to the site and instead of seeing what everyone saw, you would see what your friends like the most, right? Um, what, what your, what your circles, like what your interests are. The idea was like, you were supposed to see more relevant content to what you're more interested in, which in turn, like when, when I say that in like business talk, that makes sense where we're showing more relevant content to the user. The problem was, is that they didn't prepare for it in the way like, do people have enough friends to generate this relevant content or is it just going to be a bunch of crap? Is it just going to be like a blank page essentially with like no interesting content at all, which is, it in turn it ended up being. So you would like the day before you would go there, you would see all the best stuff on the internet. The day after you would go there and you would see almost nothing interesting at all. It would be like stuff that's been upvoted once, stuff that just got posted, stuff like like really, really bad stuff. Because a lot of people, they didn't even have any friends on day because Dig was not a social networking platform. Like you were not pushed to have friends before this update. So why would you assume that all of a sudden people have all these friends that they can bounce, you know, their, their upvotes and downvotes off? Like it didn't make... The execution of it didn't make any sense. And from what I'm reading right now, they lost over a quarter of users 
just because of this update. And then they started to fail uh, going into ads. They did ads the wrong way as well as they went and kind of stumbled and stumbled. And now it's kind of just like a blog site with not a lot of users at all. Uh, it was it was a huge downfall because Dig could have been Reddit. Um, Dig could have been even bigger than Reddit if they did fi- like the the financial side correctly because I think Reddit even Reddit kind of struggles financially. It's not the best fiscally responsible site because they they're uh, they are pretty hesitant in, in putting in new things because they know what happened to Dig. They have Dig's case study to kind of look back on, so they they still haven't found their way of monetizing uh, ethically yet. Um, so like dig kind of t- taught them that lesson at least they haven't closed down that's for sure um so it's an interesting thing like when you are doing a massive change when you are doing a redesign again there's there's nothing wrong with doing something additive there's like why like like you said with the youtube thing just they wanted to do live streaming they added live streaming to their current platform without having to take you to a different page as you log in going through all the live streams that are there like people would be pissed at that because not a lot of people on there at that current time when they flip the switch for live streaming want live streaming. They want to go back and watch their on-demand videos. So why would you push them to it? And YouTube had the forethought to not do it. They just put it into the regular feed. You would see one or two live streams max and it wouldn't bother you. And now like now that live streaming has come becoming popular, people will actually go and try to find live streams. And that's how you kind of roll out new features. So I think it again the 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 three UX considerations that we went through are very additive to each other like they're very complementary so it's a huge thing um and UX is a very big portion of our industry when you're designing stuff you want it to work properly you want people to be able to use the thing that you're that you're working on you don't just want like the most the best algorithm out there for finding a used car you want people to be able to find that algorithm. You want people to be able to use your algorithm and you want people to be able to find the used car that they were looking for, right? So that's the point of UX. I think all these points kind of make sense, especially going together. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Matt. Well, what's super interesting actually about about your, um, about your the dig example is the fact that it was so radical and so sudden. And it, it really would have probably worked out if they just had an additional tab where they just said, you know, here's the front page, here's the best stuff on the internet, like normal, that's that's your default view. But then it's just like another extra tab there. It says like, oh, what are your friends up to or something? Because then people may have, you know, there, there's that iteration thing. People may have slowly started being like, oh, I could see what my friends are up to. Maybe I'll start adding more friends. And they should have had the, like, the insights, the analytics, the whatever, the statistics to be like, okay, let's see how we can get, like, if they want to go in this direction... How many people have friends and how many, like how many people have friends, how many friends do these people have are a lot of these friends, you know, on average posting stuff or sharing stuff on the dig site, right? Dig it or whatever. And then with that being said, when we added this tab, did friends go up? Did people start posting more? If not, we need to do more things to get that up because it sounds like this redesign hinged on people sharing stuff people having friends like there was a lot like you know it's it's simple but it there's a lot there and if people don't have friends and stuff like that like a good a good example is today on on discord and stuff like that we talk to people all the time i'm not like friends on my quote-unquote friends list like my personal friends list in discord i'm not friends with all of them i don't even think of that but friends are an afterthought on discord really like i don't I don't care and nobody really cares. And I think discord realizes that, but if they did something where they said, Oh, you can join public networks and public servers like you would now normally, but you're not going to see anyone 
anyone's messages unless they're on your friends list. You know, that sounds so simple. Like, we'll just add them. That's a pain in the ass and people are not going to do it. They're going to be like, the heck with this. I'm going to use some other service, right? So it's, it's just that simple. Like you, it's simple, but it's complicated. Like you said, it sounds like a great business decision in Diggs case, but then it just falls apart. You need those numbers and you need to like have someone at least or a team of people go through the experience like a user and see where are the holes in this? What's the problem with this? What does it hinge on? Um, so I think you're going to take it off or take off with the web news, Mike. So I'll uh, yep, pass it on to you. Uh... Let's do this web news. Uh, so web news titled today, how responsible is a company to its product? Um, and this is stemmed from a recent issue that I've had with my car. Uh, I'm going to go quickly through my car situation. I know not a lot of people on the podcast are car people, so I'm just going to quickly explain. Um, I have, uh, I had a Honda Civic 08. Uh, it had a leaking problem. I took it into the shop. They said, boom, it's a cracked engine block. I'm like, damn, a cracked engine block. That's not really supposed to happen. They're like, yeah, you're right. It's actually not supposed to happen. Uh, we actually had an extended warranty on this product uh, because of the material we used. It wasn't the correct material. Like, our bad, but you're one year out of that warranty. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. Like, I'm under- I understand you had the extended warranty, but where did you come up with this arbitrary number for a ten like extending it by five years? Right. Like why, why did you extend it by five years? Why not extend it by the amount of kilometers on your engine or whatever? Like why did you decide on the 10 year mark? Why am I all of a sudden cut out? Is my, has my car gone too far? Like I only have 140,000 kilometers. I think that's something like 90,000 miles or something, 80,000. I don't know. I only have 140,000 kilometers on my car. Is that too much? I asked the tech. They're like, no, that's actually very reasonable. Like it's a low amount of kilometers for a car this old. I'm like, so where was my issue? Like, what did I do wrong? And they're like, you did nothing wrong. This was a defect. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. But but then I'm like, you're not going to fix it. No. So it was that back and forth that I had with them. And then I called Honda corporate and we had the exact same back and forth, which ended in kind of like, so you're saying your cars are bad and them saying, yes, our cars are bad. That was the end of that conversation because how am I supposed to argue that? Like, I can't go back. Okay, well, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. They, they've they admitted to their issue and they're not going to help me. Like the, I talked to multiple people in there. Um, so it's unfortunate. But like at what point – like yes, they did extend the warranty. Great. But how is how has that helped me and how does that help other people that have a cracked in the engine block due to their issue? Like it's not like I ran into something and cracked my engine block. This was 100% the fault of Honda. I did nothing wrong in this situation, Right. So why am I getting penalized for it when this car, like if, if it was a, if it was like a, a thing that's supposed to break, like the engine belt or uh, like transmission, you know, like stuff that wears and tears, this wouldn't be, I wouldn't be as upset about it, but the engine, and I've been kind of promoting the fact that, oh, Honda engines are great to friends and stuff like that. Like Honda engines can go for a long time. You shouldn't have a problem till 500,000 kilometers. Now I'm being told that that's not the case. So, and then they're, they're telling me that, yeah, that's, you're, you're, you're right. They should go that long. But due to our fault, they don't. So they don't go that long, I guess. Anyway, that's where I'm <laughs> – I know. It's it's a weird – yeah, like it's it's a stupid problem It's and it's it's frustrating. And like there's not – like it, the car is 11 years old in the end. It's not a huge thing. Like I'm, I'm not like rah, rah, let's burn down Honda obviously. It's just frustrating. That's all it is. It's just frustrating. Like now I have to go in and either – fix like uh swap my engine or get a new car which i mean like it, it's fine like i'll do it 
It's not it's not the biggest of deals, but would have been nice if they would have uh, fixed it for me. So with that being said, let's move it to a, like a more relevant technology. Let's say like in a similar scenario, what ha- what about phones? Like at what point is like would a company be responsible for a phone issue? So back to a Samsung phone, the Samsung Note 7 exploded. That was a big enough issue for the company to respond, right? They responded and they uh, – they gave everyone refunds. They gave them good deals on new phones, stuff like that. Like they, they did a lot to fix the situation because they, they screwed up. Like they were the ones that, that did, did that mistake. But let's say, um, it wasn't as big of a problem, but it was still a big problem. Let's say it was a, a display issue that happens after like three or four years and you've been treating the phone perfectly. It's out of warranty. But now the display has like a red dot in the middle of it because Samsung decided to use aluminum instead of some other material and it grows over time. And like, I, I don't know, I'm making stuff up, but like something happened. Like an, an engineering defect. Like it, an it, engineering it, defect. Yeah. Samsung did something wrong. Hypothetically. After three, yeah. And after three or four years, your phone is not functioning where you can use it like there's a there's a problem with the screen you can't see a content like you can't see content on the screen that's a big problem is it again they're out of warranty how would a company react to that like would samsung be like okay well it's our engineering problem you didn't drop the phone would we help probably not maybe they would i don't know like would there there are certain points where a company does step in but usually it's followed by a class like or preceded by a class action lawsuit right a perfect example is the Nexus 6P, right? I had a Nexus 6P. Uh, it had defective batteries. After about a year of use, a year and a half of heavy use, the battery would start to die at about 30%, 40%. Sometimes even higher, depending on the weather. So you'd be using your phone at 40%, it would die. It'd be arbitrary, so you couldn't really predict. So you'd always have to keep your phone charged above 60 or 70 and hope. Yeah. Hope for the best, essentially. So that's a big problem. Like that's that doesn't happen to normal phones. That's a huge problem. And and again, this was a known issue now at this point, and it was a battery issue that the company chose the wrong battery. They chose the like, that's it. Huawei built the phone. Google uh, was the one that was selling it. And what happened was they went through this whole process of like Huawei pointed at Google saying that their software is wrong. Google pointed at Huawei saying that their hardware is wrong and went through this back and forth. And the, the, the customer, like person that bought the phone, got nothing for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, there was a class action lawsuit. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Class action lawsuit? Okay, let's 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 help these people. Now, I never got helped, um, but it, they did they did do some stuff. They gave Pixel 1s to a lot of people. So I'm not saying that uh, it, it wasn't like effective. The class action lawsuit does work. And this has happened many, many times. So you've kind of – for. Essentially, you have to force the hand of a company to do something when it comes to something that's not exploding. <laughs> like the exploding issue is a different thing where the Samsung is like, okay, this thing is causing damage. Like this thing is being treated like it can't be on a plane. It's being treated like a bomb. Like this this is a problem. Well, imagine it blowing up in your pocket. And that's like right, literally like like severe damage. Did, yeah, like- exactly. Like it burned down. Like I don't know if it burned down a house, but it, it created damage around it. So it was essentially like a bomb. So – that's why they had to act so quickly and, you know, tackle it the way they did. If it was a screen issue that didn't damage anyone, they probably wouldn't have done that, in my opinion. Should they have? That's the that's the kind of a question that I want you to answer, Matt. Um, and then I'll move – actually, yeah, answer that question now and then I'll move on to the next one. 
Well, it's a really good question because, okay, so if you go, if you just think about like the lifetime of a product. So in, in terms of your car, you're saying it's 11 years old, an average car, let's say, like, like, like people will say at like 10 years, you got a good run out of a vehicle, for example. And so it, it sucks that it sucks that it's something that what it is, is, is it, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's a different situation in, in two cases. And the two cases are, if you have one case where they determine within the lifetime, so let's say the 10 years, they determine within the 10 years that yes, there was some sort of defect. We messed this up. There was an engineering problem. That's situation one. In my opinion, then they kind of are responsible for how long I don't know, but in my opinion, it should be longer than the average lifetime of the product. However, in, in situation two, when let's say, for example, everyone buys a, everyone has phones. People up, usually upgrade every two years, every three years, something like that. So a phone's lifetime to a user is two to three years. But let's say somebody uses a, uh, uses a phone for 10 years and then the screen starts to screw up. And then you start having slowly other people who also used the phone for 10 years and start having the screen screwed up. There comes a point where maybe that was due to a manufacturing issue or maybe an engineering defect in terms of the engineering. And so the screens would start like messing up. However, it was never designed for that long. It was never tested for that long. And so I'm a little more lenient in those cases because you're like, well, the average person gets rid of it in two years. How like we're all human here. How am I supposed to know or assume that you're going to keep your phone for 10 years and that there is like a defect because there is a defect in everything. You know, nothing, nothing we make is perfect, you know, not, and, and it could be something so ridiculous. Like, oh, at 10 years, if you lived in a cold client climate on average, your phone screen would break, you know, what an outrageous thing to assume people would go for. And with that being said, if you think about it with old, like older, um, vintage things like older antiques, things that are functional, People always have something they say so that that goes. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, that old clock, you know, that's Model 3. The right hand or the seconds hand used to always go in those things. You'd have to put a new seconds hand thing every few years in it or whatever, right? Like people know of those defects and they're more accepting of that. In your case, though, it's BS that, number one, that the car wasn't used as much as it would normally be in a 10-year span. You weren't abusing it and that there wasn't any incentive as far as I'm aware, that was offered to you. It's sort of like, oh, you're one year out, like, like get the hell out of here. It's sort of like, it would be more acceptable if they said something like, oh, we'll put a new one in, but you have to pay for the parts, and like we won't, like we won't charge you labor. Like that's that's more acceptable. I'd still be ticked off, but it's something like just throw toss me a bone. You weren't at the 15 year mark. You're one year over their statistical thing, and we're talking it again an underused vehicle in terms of average thing. So in my opinion, it's a, it's more unacceptable that that happened. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's a weird situation because like, yes, I've used the car for a good amount of time. I got out of it and I'm not super angry because of that. You know what I mean? Like if, if it was a lot earlier in the situation, I'd be furious if they didn't fix it. Now that I've used it for so long, it's like you said, how are they supposed to test all these things? Like, how are you supposed to realistically test a car for like six or seven years or 150,000 kilometers? Like, how are you supposed to do that as a company? Right. Like there's, 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 way, there's ways to like put more wear and tear in it artificially yes. to like do it. But 
like this was a very clear like oh within the within yeah. these warning periods like or within the 10 year average it's like oh we we identified that we kind of fucked this material up yeah so what what i think they should have done is told me about it right like when i cuz i bring my car to service in honda like i don't bring it to a random shop i go to honda to service my car why like if there's such a big issue why not tell me about this 3 years ago and be like, listen, there might be an issue with the car. Let's do A, B, and C to try to mitigate the issue. Let's use sealant in there like once a year. Let's, you know what I mean? Like there's so many, there's so many things that they could have done where I wouldn't have had to replace my engine now. But I never knew about this. Like this wasn't a recall, so they didn't have to tell me. So they won't, they're not going to tell me. If they don't have to do something, they're not going to do it. See, like that's outrageous. Why isn't that a recall? Exactly. Why isn't that a recall? That's the other thing. It's like, that's what I asked them. I'm like, why isn't that a recall? It's like, well, not enough people were affected by it at the time. But like, there's a lot of people, like if you go online and search 08, 07, 06 Honda, I think it goes up to 2009, but only a certain one. Those Hondas regularly fail at like 80,000 miles, which is, and like a lot of people when they go and if you go and look like, should I buy an 08 Honda? People will say like, don't do it because it has a very high chance of failing. Like the, cra- the there might be a crack in your engine block and there's not much you can do about that without replacing an engine. And again, you replace an engine. So like I have an option to replace my engine. It's not s- ridiculously expensive, but it's pretty pricey. Uh, but you always have the chance because it's still going to be of the same year or like around the same year. You're going to have a chance of it happening again because it's a high probability or a higher probability. So like, why would I do that? It's a frustrating thing. This particular situation is frustrating, but like, again, I've used the car for 11 years. I can let it go and I can kind of move on. I'm not going to sue the company. Like a lot of people on here are like screaming at them because their, you know, 11 year old car doesn't work. And they're like, I'm going to, you know, file a small claim, go to small claims court. I'm not going to do that in this situation. Um, I'm not happy. Like I wish Honda would have treated it differently. Like you said, thrown in something. Another, another thing is like, I went to Honda to look at a civic, a new Civic. After all this, I did that, right? Like I was like, you know what? I still loved my Civic. I'm going to go look at it. And I'm like, well, like this, this X, X, Y, and Z happened to the sales guys. Like I, the Honda the is literally standing right there. Like I pointed at it in the, in the window. I'm like, can you guys do anything for me? Like, can you at least take it in as a trade-in? Give me a little bit more money for it. You know, like knock some money off. They're like, no, no, it's, it's done. See that, that, that to me, that to me at, at that point is, you know, I I don't want to sound entitled because some people would be like, well, don't be so entitled. Just pay the price everyone else does. But at the same time, it's like you were put in a shitty situation. And it, at that point, like what if they if they had told me like that, like if I was legitimately on the lot, first of all, I wouldn't have been on the lot. I know, um, I know. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a firecracker it. with stuff like that. I'd yeah. be fucking throwing <laughs> things and it'd be real bad. Um, <laughs> like even though, even though my car's 15 years old, I would have fucking lost my shit. <laughs> I would have just been like throwing shit and like screaming because the thing is, is like not at like my mechanic now because I just go to like a like a town like a, a mechanic in town. But like you were going to the fucking dealer for regular maintenance and they didn't tell you last year that this was happening. And yeah. they didn't tell you. They didn't mention it. They didn't say anything. They didn't warn you of it happening. They didn't even say like, hey, this is happening. Maybe we can offer you an incentive now before it potentially happens as a trade in. Like they didn't say that. They didn't mention that anything. Didn't mention it. Like, I would have literally flipped my shit, like, fucking freaked right out, probably escorted out by police. <laughs> like, police may have had to been called. Because I would have just been like, you sons of bitches, like, that's it. And that would have been it for, like, if it, if it was my Civic, that'd be, I wouldn't have even fucking been on the lot. Like, that, short of me, this is a joke, short of me driving the fucking car through the showroom, like, through the window, I wouldn't have been on the lot. That's a joke, everyone simmer down. 
But the point is, is like, but the point is, is like, I would have been like verbally very fucking angry, freaking out, you know. I'm swearing now. It's like in my vehicle. You're, you're getting angry now, and it's not ah. happening to you. So yeah, I can I can imagine how angry you would be. Yeah, it's like it is a shitty situation. I gave them all that I could. Essentially, I'll give them all the chances I could to make it better. I didn't ask for much. Like I was like, just trade in, like take it as a trade in. Yeah, give me a bit more for it, so I don't have to go and get it fixed. E- I even like two grand, like much. two grand extra. Yes, just two grand exactly. off. It's not that much anyway. And they, so they don't at that point. At that point, as a conclusion, that's they it. don't care that's about you I mean. as a customer. Like, so I don't yes. give a fuck about them as a company. Fucking sayonara. Yeah. I'll go that, buy that's something the else. End of it. Yeah. So and that and that was the end of it with me. I was like, okay, I guess that's it. So <laughs> that was the end of the chapter. So, but and I'm moving on to different cars. But again, like, at what point? Again, I think as a company, and I'll, I'll kind of make this the, the concluding statement for a company. As a company. You should give a crap about your customer. Like, I don't think you should be so dismissive about your customer. You're, especially when it's not much that they're asking for. Like, if it's like, let's say this, let's say the Samsung situation happened, right? That, that my hypothetical Samsung situation with the, with the screen, maybe it's unreasonable to think that it would last for over three years. Like, maybe on the third year, the screen stuff happens. Maybe on the third and a half year or something like that sucks. Shitty situation. Maybe you should have bought a new phone every two years, whatever. Like it's a shitty situation, like it, it but it's kind of forgivable because you, you usually buy a phone once every two years. But what they could do is be like, okay, this happened. We'll take it as a trade in and we'll give you a couple hundred bucks off because they take crappy phones as trade ins anyway. So this isn't really going to hurt them in any way. So like it, it, it's one of those things like they could easily remedy the situation. They could be upfront about it. Like I'm a big fan of com- companies that communicate. Uh, it, and it actually goes back to your UX considerations. When you're making a big change in UX, communicate with your user base. Be like, we're making a big redesign. Here's the alpha of the redesign. You don't have to use it right now. Just go to it and then give us all the feedback you possibly can on the alpha. Like it sucks, whatever. And let's get through it together. That's that's the kind of way I would do a big change. I would ask for as much feedback as I possibly could. I wouldn't listen to all the feedback because, you know, it's like, Again, a lot of emotions happen when stuff changes, but as time settles and as people start using it, you'll get more meaningful feedback and you can really use it. Um, but again, like it, I think it's important to treat your customers like normal human beings. You don't have to bend over and take it from them, but at least meet them in some way, like make them feel like they're a person and not just like, oh, you're, you're a nobody. Just get the hell out of here. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where, where's that visa card? Like sign here. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. Just, just give me, give me that visa and that's it. And like, I'm, Nothing against the people that work at Honda too. Like the person that was working there was fine. Like I know that it was the fact that she literally just didn't have an option in her system to do anything for me, which is like a Honda problem, not so much like the the dealer, like not so much like the uh, salesperson problem. Like they're there, they have like X, Y, and Z options to do stuff. They can't do anything else, yeah, because that's how they work. Other companies don't have those kinds of restrictions, and it's not a small thing too. Like it wasn't like oh my hubcaps rusted, yeah. That's the thing that's like that really gets you. Like if it's like if it's that and you're like I want two thousand dollars, it's like dude, it's a it's a hubcap. Like it sucks, but yeah. like fuck. Ah. Yeah, the car's dead essentially. Well, I mean, like it's still drivable, but like you have to constantly refill the fluid, the coolant. Um, but moving on from technology and cars, what about web developers? Like, what about us? At what point are we to feel responsible for a product? Like, let's say we have a course that we may that we do online. And our course is selling. It's like a lot of people are buying it. And it turns out that like two years, three years down the line, 
one of our the functions that we wrote in our course had a memory leak and it crashed someone's server and they lost a bunch of data i don't know like one of the like you know what i mean we made a mistake in the course to to write a function and had a while loop or whatever and it crashed someone's server and they lost a bunch of data is that would you feel responsible for something like that like and how would you react like if they were to reach out to you maybe not angry being like they just reach out to you being like, hey, this happened. What would you do to remedy the problem? Like my first my first thing, my first thing would be I would probably take a look and see, you know, are other people complaining about this? And then I'd have to try to get the person's, you know, explicit what they did. Because even them doing something in the wrong order, but like pasting all the right code, let's say, or something could be like a major difference. Um, I will say, though, that I wouldn't feel super responsible, and I know that people might be like, well, what the hell is that? Like, you're double-backing on the car thing. But would you feel – would, like, you on – or would you – excuse me. Would you post something on Stack Overflow knowing that potentially someone might misuse it or you didn't think of, you know, the one millionth case and then it crashed someone's server and resulted in data loss? Like, if you felt that responsible by simply posting a solution on Stack Overflow – if everybody felt that way, you would not post on there and nobody else would either. You know, it's really a matter of, you know, it sucks. And like, if there's a memory leak or something like that, and it's clearly labeled, I'd maybe let, you know, fix it or whatever, or like label it. Maybe if there was an email list that the pe- that the course was attached to, it'd send out, Hey, we had to update this. The memory leak was found. You know, I'd re- try to responsibly deal with it. But the thing is, the fact of the matter is, is that you're not going to get like, 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 we're human too. And if it wasn't like something where I just wrote a function, didn't test it, and it erased someone's data, like if that was the case, wrote a function, you didn't, you didn't peer review it, you didn't test it, I didn't test it, none of the users tested it, and I just shipped it in the course, and then it, you know, someone tried to use it and it broke something, that's bad. Like, that's sort of on me. But if it's something where, you know, we used it for a long time, like you said, the course is old, and then it, then it starts breaking down, it's like at some point, yes, we're not necessarily responsible because you can't really be it it'd be you know, you know what it would be it'd be like the equivalent of like let's say we're we're using what what, what would be a good example like let, let's hypothetically say we we invented some sort of new technology of any sort and it's like a fantastic technology and it works really great and everything like that it's a new type of it's 6g but it's it does something brand new it like works totally different and everything's fine and we test it and it's great hooray and then in 15 years, we find out, oh, shit, it's actually making people go blind. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, shit, this type yeah. of wave is making people go blind. But only due to this long-term exposure, there was no way to test it. What I feel really bad, absolutely, like, that's real bad. But at the same time, it's like, am I liable, in my opinion, because I'm not a lawyer, but am I liable in, like, the court? Maybe legally, but to me, I'm not going to feel responsible, if that makes sense. Because... How else am I supposed to do anything? Like, I can't, I can't, like, you know, you can't go through life worrying about that sort of thing. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like, if you say one bad thing to a kid and he takes that and becomes a serial killer, is that my fault? Do you know what I mean? Like, if he takes Mm -hmm. that to heart, he remembers that moment where I was like, hey, kid, you suck. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, just some sort of situation. And then he becomes like. Like, he just, like, he can't handle insults for some reason after that. Like, it could happen, though. Like, yeah. as a kid, you remember weird, specific moments. He remembers that. It's his first time he was insulted. He couldn't handle it. Becomes a serial killer. Am I responsible for that? 
Mm, no. No, yes, but yes, I'm technically responsible. If there was some sort of paper trail, yes, I am. However, it was not due. What the heck was that? That was a weird noise. Uh, it was not, it's, it wasn't due to like my negligence and I, it was not my intention and it was no way for me to see that potentially happening. I think that's a yeah. big part of it. Yeah. I think, uh, I think a big thing is, is like, if it were to happen, and let's say it only happened to like one person, I think my, my response would be, Hey, like that's, that sucks. Um, and, let's 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 let's, like let's fix it like i'll go in there and fix it myself i'll like like you said i'll blast out an email blast saying that it's fixed if it's one person or if it's a couple people i have no problem like if they want it i'll return their money yeah yeah yeah. you know what i mean like it's not it's no it's not going to be a big thing at that point like i i don't think i don't think you should hold on to that like i'm not going to return your money especially when it's like a small product like a a course like a 30 dollar course or something or a book something like that like you know what i mean if it's gonna if it's gonna ease the situation i'm fully willing to do that even when i'm right and they're wrong in some cases but when it's a big a more complex problem a lot of people are are associated with it then you have to kind of tackle it a different way in my opinion um do you return the money like if 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 it's something like that's where you have to kind of analyze the situation do you return the money partially do you not return the money at all um are like you go in analyze how they're using it is that the main part of the course? Stuff like that. Like you would have to go in and really consider if it's the engine of the course, like bringing it back to the car a little bit, I would be feel more responsible. But if it's like the side thing, like I'm teaching you how to uh, submit a form online uh, and I, like I, I quickly added an authentication protocol to log you in as a user, just as a side note, just like as a side thing, uh, just so that the form would work. And I clearly state that and the, it's the authentication form that, that screwed people over, I would feel less responsible. Because I clearly stated that this isn't the point of the course. Like, the course is yeah. about submitting the form, right? Not about this. Literally like but the rusty a, hubcap thing. Literally that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's not that big a deal. But if if I was, like, submitting the form and you sub, and there was a way, like, if you submit the form, it just causes a memory leak and deletes all your files, whatever. Like, I'm a super hypothetical situation. But... I would feel more responsible and I'd probably do something about it. Like I would probably refund the money of the course if, because it's an engine problem again. And you would probably co- catch those early on anyway. So it's not a huge deal. And again, it depends on the situation. There could be a situation where like this, this is something that would change it. Engine of the course, like, and like it's the, it's the form three years down the line, the JavaScript specs changed. Everything's kind of broken in your course. You forget to update it. That one is a kind of a gray area. I think that if it's dated in that case, um, you don't even no. necessarily say it because like think about how many times like could you imagine writing because back in the day yeah. you used to write computer books. Exactly. Could you imagine writing a book where you have to ambiguously word everything to state like as as of writing this book, clicking yeah. the left mouse button, like could you and then every every sentence also as of writing this book, USBA is the only standard or something. It's too much, right? Exactly. That's the thing. Like, and, and the thing is, is that like the course would have had a date on it. And if we would have updated, we would have said we updated it. So they would have, they, they're knowingly using it outdated at that point. It's my problem that I didn't update it, but like I wasn't, that wasn't a guarantee. I usually wouldn't guarantee an update for every course that I would make or something like that. It's one of those things where like in that situation, yeah, I agree with you. It's not really. 
it's not really your problem. Like I would help in any way I could with the limited time that I have to help. But other than that, like I can't really do anything in that situation. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe put a warning in the course or something. Well, it'd be the same as like we write up, we do a, well, a good example actually is just like a straight up WordPress site. You take a WordPress site. We make, you know, we make it. Person doesn't want to pay anything like to us. They don't want to pay our hosting. They don't want to do anything. They want to manage the hosting. So it's like, okay, make a WordPress site. Works fine. Give it to them. Walk away. And then one of those plugins don't get updated because nothing got updated because they didn't do it, let's say. And we're not responsible for that anymore. One of those plugins then gets exploited at the version that we installed it in because something was discovered, but it was fixed in an update that wasn't done. Someone breaks in, steals their data, leaves. And then they call us and they say, what the hell is this? It's like, well, you, you know, you didn't do the updates. You didn't want to pay for the maintenance. How responsible are we? I'm not going to keep doing everything for free. I'm not going to make sure that the oldest thing ever runs until 2070, you know, until like my death, <laughs> like, like legitimately though, you know what I mean? That sounds outrageous, yeah. but it's like some people would kind of expect that. Like they'd be like, you're still around. Your company's still there. You're, you're responsible for this. It's like, we don't see fifties cars driving around anymore for a reason. You know, we don't we, we don't see computers from 15 years ago around either to bring it back to tech. And we don't see 30 year old websites. So, yeah. you know, let's let's calm down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think that's uh, that, I think that sums up the uh, the responsibility. At least the conversation about it with the responsibility, because it's very situation to situation based i think in the developer world right like we don't know what the situation would be but i think again approach the problem like you're trying to fix it with the customer instead of you against the customer right in my opinion i think you should always do that because it'll make it a lot easier to communicate with them and a lot and the the outcome will be a lot better again sometimes they're not going to be happy there's nothing you can do about that like you've done everything you can but at least you've approached it from from a place where you wanted to fix it so I think that's where I would leave that conversation. Well, let me ask you one quick follow-up question that's related, and and Mm -hmm. it'd be related to a review. Let's say, for example, you reviewed the Note 7. So the Note 7 was a real... That was the one that blew up, right? Yeah. So the Note 7. You reviewed the Note 7, and you say it's a fantastic phone. You love it. It was great. Everybody go and buy it, and then everyone goes and buys it, and like six people get burnt to crap. Are you responsible no, you know what I mean. Not even no, not even a little bit. Because again, you're you don't know the manufacturer's defects. Like you can't that I wouldn't. I would feel tiny bit bad, but like I wouldn't feel responsible. No, because the thing I is, I would feel that the company is. I would be. I would be. If I was the reviewer, I would be ten times as pissed at the company at that point than the than the customer. I think. Thing is, though, is like with that being said, how like how. How bad would the battery tech feel? How bad would the circuit guy feel? How bad would bad. It, bad? But these guys also didn't make this thing with the intention or with the inkling that oh, this could blow up. Yeah, and and, and but it, because of that, no one went to jail, right? Like, you know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't a malicious. It, it thing. wasn't it wasn't, it wasn't criminal it, negligence or whatever. Exactly, yeah. it wasn't criminal. It wasn't like the Ford Pinto problem where they literally like knew the problem. And then equated it to an equation of like, this is how much a human life is worth. <laughs> like, that's what happened with the Ford Pinto. So that wasn't the case with the Note 7. They didn't know about the problem. And when they did know about it, they kind of did maybe not the best job ever that you could have done, but they did a pretty good job in fixing it as much as they could. They didn't They didn't go out there with the intention of killing people no. or, or, or igniting stuff on fire. They wanted to make a thinner phone with a bigger battery. Like, that was that was their mistake. 
So and and they were even they even physically set up in airports because when people showed up with them, they were like, "Hey, get rid of that Note Seven and up and change to this, like, and do it right now so you don't miss your flight." So, like, yep. I mean, that's still pretty good. So, yeah. Um. Okay, so I'm gonna go to run the old conclusion here. Unless you have anything else to add, Mike. Nope. Runner up. Alrighty, so thank you for listening, and make sure you do not miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials. That adds, that is at HTML All The Things. That's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at HTML Everything. We are on Medium, and we're on GitHub. And remember, we are also on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML All The Things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons. That's Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. You can find him at youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. And remember, that works. It's spelled W-E-R-K-S. Also, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. You can find him at localpathcomputing.com. Also, Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. And last but not least, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. You can find him at blueblackdigital.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and we are signing off. Yeah.